Amen. Well, uh, open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 13. We are picking back up into our series of Mark. Uh, we've been away from that for, <clears throat> for quite a while. And uh, we're stepping back into Mark. And the, the plan that I have, Lord willing, is that we finish Mark about the week after um, Easter. So this is the, the trajectory that we are on. Hopefully we can accomplish this in that time period. And uh, if you haven't been here, been with us through our study of Mark, then I would encourage you to go back to our website and uh, to listen to all 56 sermons so far of the Gospel of Mark. Now, you don't have time to do that this morning uh, in between what I'm about to say and and uh, maybe the time you could pull it up. So let me kind of give you a very quick rundown, really of just the last couple of chapters, uh, because of the relevance that they play into chapter 13. So back in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, uh, the last section really it starts there in chapter 10, moving in uh, really toward the end of the book itself. Uh, in chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples, they're making their way back to the south, to Jerusalem. They had uh, been around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been doing most of his ministry, uh, those first 10 chapters leading up to that. Um, he did about 80, 90% of his ministry in that area, in that region. Then he took kind of a detour with his disciples only into um, pagan territory, Gentile territory, Roman territory. And then he worked his way back down with his disciples uh, to Jerusalem, and they were coming into Jerusalem for the annual Jewish Passover that was to be celebrated. And part of the the motivation for that was, well, the Passover itself. But the most important thing that Jesus had been repeating to his disciples is that he was going to lay down his life. He was going to die. The element of of what he was doing while he's coming back into Jerusalem is teaching and preparing his disciples for his death that was about to happen. Now, uh, we then see Jesus enter Jerusalem in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers, as you've probably heard the story. Uh, he then curses the temple. He also curses Jerusalem in chapter 11. And uh, really, the whole nation of Israel was under that curse that Jesus proclaims. Then in chapter 12, we see a barrage of questions to Jesus as he goes back into the temple complex. He is bombarded with questions from the Sadducees and Pharisees and, and anybody else that would like to say something to him. And so he's uh, bombarded with these questions, all in an attempt to discredit him, to undermine his ministry. And all of them have the motivation uh, in, in destroying him in some aspect. And really, most of them had the intention of destroying him physically to remove him off the scene. So Jesus, in chapter 12, we see that it ends with this picture of a broken system. And he, he gives a, a real-life example of this with this poor woman that throws in her two last pennies uh, into the offering box. And Jesus points to that as this broken system of Israel and the leadership of Israel and what the scribes, the Pharisees, others had been doing to deceive and to manipulate the people of Israel of Jerusalem, of Israel, and all of it was by religious means. All of it was through these religious activities and practices. And so Jesus points this out as something that is so broken, and this is part of why this curse was put upon this place. And so today we're going to step back into kind of the same time period, the same kind of uh, 
um, conversation that's going on with Jesus and his disciples in chapter 13. And what we see is the future being predicted by Jesus. Again, to understand clearly what chapter 13 is saying, we cannot divorce it from chapters 10 through 12, nor can we divorce it from the rest of the book of Mark. So this chapter that we have that's probably labeled in your Bible some way of Jesus foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem or the end times or these kinds of titles. Um, And as we talk about the end times and labeling it that way, uh, a theological word that we use about end times study is eschatology. Eschatology. So that is the study of end times events. Now, there's fewer topics that create a fire in the bowels of believers than the topic of eschatology. There's more opinions and passions that are evoked uh, when we start to talk about the end times and people's view on end times theology. If you want to see your church attendance balloon, you want to see your Bible study double, all you have to do is promote, hey, we're doing a study on Revelation, uh, and then you see this ballooning happen And uh, all these people kind of flock to that. People that aren't even Christians start to show up because you talk about end times and the end of the world. And and people are drawn to that like like a moth to a flame kind of idea. Now, some of you are consumed with eschatology. Some of you are consumed to the point that in almost every single conversation, you have to bring it up. Like it's just like right there on your tongue. And like you'd be like, hey, how's, you know, what, what do you think about this freezing cold weather today? Yeah, it's, it's pretty cold, but, you know, whenever Jesus comes, his eyes will be like fire and, like, whoa, easy, right? Like, every, every topic that you come across, like, it just comes out of your mouth. It's just right there, and I think this is a problem. Um, it's likely that maybe you don't read books because a lot of people in America don't read anymore. Um, but if you were to read a book... It would probably be a book about maybe end times or eschatology of some sort. And, and maybe if, if you haven't read a book, or at least you gave it a good try in reading about the end times. There's abundance of sermons, books, resources, all kinds of things out there that deal with eschatology, that deal with the end times. And you have probably consumed some of that, if not maybe a lot of that. There have been entire groups, entire denominations of people that uh, have a different view of eschatology than others, and so they create their own group because they disagree with others. And there's also been countless prophecies that have made about the end of the world, when the end of the world is going to happen. One group that has been uh, leading the way of being wrong has been the Jehovah's Witness, and the Jehovah's Witness first predicted that the end of the world would come in 1874, and then 1878, then 1881, then 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, then 1984. They have a really good track record of being wrong. Um, along with other people, not just groups that would try to use the Bible to, to find this, but we have other New Age groups, other uh, cultural groups that would say, well, the end of the world is going to happen in... 2012 because the Mayan calendar ends and, you know, the world comes to an end or Y2K or whatever, uh, or somebody got elected in the United States, so the end of the world's happening, right? Um, And it's this kind of countless um, talking about and promoting, maybe it's books or, or even sermons that point in this kind of direction. So you'll find in maybe a Christian bookstore somewhere or definitely on the internet, stories, books about blood moon symbolism, current events, and really other speculatory things uh, all throughout the internet, all throughout bookstores. 
there's a massive amount of information that's out there. A massive amount about the end times, or at least people's thoughts about the end times. And so I would say that a vast majority of that information is speculation and a twisting of scriptures so that it will fit into maybe a person's own eschatological, that's a hard word to say, box. And this is why um, there's so much about it. And people are, again, drawn to this. Maybe you are prone to flock to this conversation. Now, we're going to tackle this chapter, chapter 13, in just two weeks. So let me caveat this, is that I will not be able to draw every single thing out of the text as I would like to, but if we want to keep our timeline, it's impossible to do that. And it's also not going to be possible to answer every single question. So if you have questions, you can send me an email, uh, and I'll respond with, I don't know, um, and that kind of thing. So um, it, I, I hope, though, through this time that I give you an overview, kind of an overarching view, uh, a uh, fly-by view of what this text is talking about, and that will help you in your own study of end times events, in your own eschatology. So let's jump in here to the text itself, and sort of just the first two verses in Mark chapter 13, verse 1 says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, remember that Jesus had just been in the temple complex. They're coming out of the temple in this massive complex that it was. And he had been addressing in chapter 12 false teachers, a false system, a broken system, destructive practices of the leadership of Israel, And also let me remind you that um, Jesus taught back in chapter 11 with the cursing of the fig tree and what this fig tree represented. That fig tree represented the nation of Israel, it represented Jerusalem, the city, and also the leadership of that city. So that fig tree and what it represented, what it was pointing to, the example Jesus gave for it was all part of and is part of now what chapter 13 is even about, dealing with this idea of false teaching. So when we hear the first two verses of this chapter, we should not be surprised that Jesus speaks this way, even though it seems to be a surprise to the disciples that we'll see in the next few verses, three and four. In verse one, it says that uh, one of the disciples pointed out the magnificent structure that was there. And now the temple complex consisted of the temple and other buildings that were part of that. It was highly impressive, so impressive that even today we refer to it as a you know, a wonder of the world, probably. Now, the second temple, it's also known as Herod's Temple um, because it was built by Herod the Great. Uh, Not that he was such a great guy, but it was a glorious structure. It was super impressive, and people, again, from all over the world at that time knew about this temple in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish people believed something about that spot and about that structure. They believed that it was the only place on earth that the presence of God would come down and reside in. And because of this view, they believed that the temple was virtually indestructible until the end of time, because the presence of God is there. If you would go to the Temple Mount today, you would find a sign there that's written in English and in Hebrew and and maybe Arabic. Uh, But it, 
it says in that sign that this is where the presence of God resides. So they still have that thought that's still part of their belief system that God's presence resides here. But look at verse 2. Jesus responds, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus responds to the observation that was made. Again, this, whoever this disciple was that talked about this building, this structure, maybe it was his first time being there, and he was just really excited about what had happened. It's probably not his first time, but it, he's pointing it out anyways. But Jesus says something about this observation that is, is shocking. It's shocking to this disciple, to these disciples. And what is this statement? Well, he says, not one stone will be left upon each other. This was shocking because the temple, it was symbolic of God's presence. And what Jesus was just promising, what he was just predicting was what? That the presence of God would be removed. It's not just the building's going to be removed, but the presence of God is going to be removed from Jerusalem. This is pretty shocking. Now, we have a transition that happens in verses 3 and 4. There's a scene change that takes place. Look at verses 3 and 4. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So in verse 4, in verse 3 and 4, we see the scene change from the temple complex to the Mount of Olives. Now, again, if you you know kind of the, the geography of Israel, you know where the temple complex is, and then there's a valley it runs to the east, and then back the other side of that valley is the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is about 200 feet above kind of the, the temple complex. So what these disciples have and Jesus has is a perfect overlook into the Temple Mount. And so whenever they sit down and they start to talk about the Temple Mount, they're all probably looking this direction. They're all looking to the temple and this magnificent building that was there. And then Jesus has these four disciples that kind of want to speak to him privately about what he had just said. And they asked the question, when will these things be? When's this going to happen, Jesus? Now, this question points back to verse 2 and what Jesus promised about the destruction of the temple. So, when does the destruction of the temple happen? Because Jesus promised that it would happen, so when does it happen? Well, historically, we know that it happens in 70 AD, which is 40 years, that's significant, after Jesus had died, after he had, had rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven. Forty years. Why did this happen? Well, it's because of the Jewish war. If you're familiar with this, the, the history uh, of the Jewish war, it started in 66 AD. It lasted three and a half years until AD 70. And during that time, the Roman general Titus uh, had marched into the city of Jerusalem at that time in 70 AD and ransacked the temple and then somehow it caught on fire and everything burned to the ground. And this was a horrific war, not just a horrific event that happened in 70 AD. But leading up to that, it was, it was terrible, it was awful, it was destructive, not just to the temple, but to the people of the Jews. And the historian Josephus tells us that around 1.1 million Jews were killed during this war in just three and a half years. Now, there are some estimates... Um, and again, these historical numbers, are, they could be way off because there wasn't great recording of this. But one estimate was that there was 2.3 million Jews at the time, which would mean that about half the population was wiped out, was killed. Not only was there 1.1 million that was 
that was murdered in this time period, but there was also another uh, almost 100,000 that was taken into captivity and then sold as slaves during this time. So this whole event from 66 to 70 AD was just filled with one tragedy after another with hundreds of thousands of millions that have been slaughtered through this time in this war. And that's just on the Jewish side. So there was, there was Romans that were being killed, that were being slaughtered by the zealots as well. Uh, there was a lot of sneak attacks that were taking place, um, people dressing up in costumes and whatnot and stabbing people on the street um, just as part of the rebellion. And so if you can imagine this time period, this three and a half years just being a bloody mess, a awful mess in Jerusalem and Israel as a whole. So they asked this question of Jesus in verse 4, when's this going to happen? Now he doesn't give them a date, as we'll see. Look at verse 5 through verse 13. This is the response, part of the response Jesus gives, and this is the only part that we're going to be able to focus on today. Verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must be proclaimed, first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And a brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his children, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus gives a response to the question that they have, this question of when will these things take place? And what we see here is that Jesus doesn't give an answer of dates. He doesn't give an answer of specific times. He, doesn't, he also doesn't give any kind of indication as to apocalyptic figures like the Antichrist or the false prophet or the four horsemen as we, what we would find later in the book of Revelation. Rather, what Jesus is doing, he is encouraging his disciples to be watchful, to be on guard. This is what he's encouraging this is the overarching theme of this chapter. This has been the overarching theme of chapter 12, 11, 10. It's pointing back to this idea, be, be careful of these false teachers, these, these leaders that are leading you astray, they're putting heavy burdens upon you. And so what Mark is helping us understand by how he's put this together is that we need to pay attention. We need to be on guard. Jesus' answer it's not really meant to give us any kind of details of the future, but to give assurance to the disciple, to the follower, about God's providential plan through all the perceived chaos and destruction and the troubling times. With this assurance, it should come as an encouragement to live faithfully in the present time that you are in and into the future that is coming. It seems that Mark is writing these things because there needed to be kind of a, a cooling of the jets, so to speak, of thinking about, well, the end has already come, it's already, it's already upon us. 
And he writes this to help people remain faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of suffering, which I would say is needed in our culture, in our time today. Now there's some of you who would get really worked up about the end coming because of events that are happening or have happened or maybe you think they're going to happen. So if this describes you, then please listen to the words of Jesus and the context of this chapter carefully. I think this is going to be really helpful for you, helpful for us, if we pay attention to what Jesus is teaching us. Notice again in verse 5, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Notice he starts with a warning. He doesn't start with the answering the question, which is pretty common to how Jesus speaks. But he, he starts with a warning, warning about these disciples following false teachers. And what do false teachers do? He says they will lead you astray. This word astray carries with it the idea of being led away from the truth. The truth. If you're to be led away from something, the worst thing you'd be led away from is the truth. And so what do false teachers do? They will always lead you away from the truth. And most specifically, the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of who he is. In the next verse, verse 6, it makes the point that when Jesus says that there will be, a, there will be people come in his name, um, that this is what it will look like. So what does his name mean? Well, he, he gives the phrase here, I am he, which is not meaning that they're going to claim to be Jesus of Nazareth, which some people have in the past, but they are claiming to be God in the flesh. This is what they, those words, I am, is a direct reference to the name of God, of I am. So these people that would come, that would be false teachers, false leaders, false messiahs, these would be people that are claiming some sort of deity, they are claiming some sort of messiahship, and they're leading people away from the one true Messiah, the one true God. And there were several who would fit into this profile of this happening that Jesus predicts uh, even before 70 AD. And even now, even in the last couple of months, there's a story of uh, a man named Jesus that was arrested in Russia uh, along with some of his followers recently. And so this is not an uncommon thing that we, we know from history, that we know from even recent history, that people will do this. And there's people out there that will lead you astray from the truth and the truth of who Jesus really is. Now, Jesus tells us that, that there will be many who will come to lead many astray. Why is it that there will be many who are led astray? Why is this going to happen? Why is this possible? Because people are easily manipulated. People are easily taken advantage of. The Bible describes us as sheep, right? Sheep aren't the brightest of animals. I think even compared to goats, they're not very bright. So since we're all prone to be easily manipulated, easily persuaded by cunning tactics, we have to hang on to something that's solid, that's truthful. Because again, part of the warning is not to be led away from the truth. So what is that? Well, it's that book in which you have in front of you, His Word, the Bible. It is a rock-solid book for us to hang on to and cling to and check ourselves against. And whenever other people are saying, oh no, over here, I'm He, we can check if that's valid, if that's true. God's Word, it can be trusted. And this chapter that you have in front of you, chapter 13, is proof of this fact. 
when God says something is going to happen, it will happen. When he promises something, he never breaks his promise. And this is what we see from this chapter. This is what we see from what Jesus has been promising already from chapters 10 into chapter 13. Look at verse 7 again. It says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So the warning continues. Again, he starts by warning. He keeps continuing to warn. And he doesn't actually answer the question yet either. He continues to warn them about being led astray, about being manipulated. And being manipulated by those who use fear and alarm as their tactic to mislead you. Again, there's tons of, of preachers, of, of teachers, who are using this tactic to manipulate you into buying their bill of goods. Whether that means that you are drinking in all that they are saying on the radio or podcast or TV. And why do they do this? Because, well, it, it satisfies their ego, it satisfies their bank account, um, you, you go to their conferences, you buy their resources, you point other people to do the same thing. And Jesus is saying, don't fall into that trap. Don't fall for these fear-mongering false teachers. He says there in verse 7, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't get caught up in this kind of propaganda. Don't get caught up in that. Don't be consumed by the fear in which they're peddling to you. So please, please listen. Here, here's the warning that we have. One of the warnings that we have for us, and it deals with fear. The Bible teaches us in Proverbs 1-7 that we are to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if we are fearing other things more than God, then we have bought into the lie of these fear mongers. And this is happening all around us, all around you whether that is by maybe liberal media or conservative media, they, what do they do? They present to you a slanted view of the facts with an agenda to manipulate you into watching more or the next program, the, say on the same station, and really to take in more of their slanted view of the facts. This is also happening a lot in quote-unquote Christian circles, Christian radio, TV. It's the same kind of tactic, but what they have done, they spiritualize the tactic. And so it sounds like, well, they've attached some Bible verses to it, so it must be okay for me to buy into the fear that they're peddling. It's not okay. This is the problem. And as your pastor, I want to warn you against falling into that trap. Some of you might need to step away from your media intake. And maybe it's media through TV or radio, or maybe it's social media that you need to back away from because you are prone to falling for the same tricks, the same fear tactics again and again, and it's consumed your life. Fear has overtaken you, and it's not the fear of the Lord that's overtaken you, but the fear of other things. This is dangerous. This is all of what Jesus is warning against. This is all of what he's preparing his disciples to fight against so why should we not be alarmed? Why should we not be frightened and really frightened or alarmed of anything? Look at verse 7. Look at the next line. This must take place, but the end is not yet. What Jesus just pointed out with that statement 
is the divine necessity of these things to happen. Why should you not be frightened? Why should you not be alarmed? Because all of these things are going to happen. And they will happen because God is going to use all these things for what purpose? His purpose and His glory. Everything that is going to transpire is because God has designed it to happen just that way it's going to happen. There's no other way for it to happen. This must take place, but the end is not yet. This is what's indicated by those words, must take place. This is divine trust your Bible. Why can you trust Jesus? Because he is certain. He is certain of what he says. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He's not like the false teachers. He doesn't lead anyone astray. He only leads them into the truth. Now, when Jesus says that the end is not yet, the question that you should ask, we should ask, is end of what? Well, again, pointing backward into the immediate context that we have here in chapter 13, he's addressing the the question of verse 4, right? And this question of these things. But that also points back to verse 2. And that's talking about the destruction of the temple. When is this going to happen, Jesus? And so he says here in verse 7, the end is not yet. This end hasn't come. Then into verse 8, this should also be examined in the same idea of the immediate context that we have. And so as it talks about the nations against other nations, kingdom against other kingdoms, this verse is pointing to the idea of divine necessity as well with the phrase, these are but the beginnings of birth pains. This is all being insinuated that this is all part of the plan, all part of the process that God has in store. Why should we not fear Why should we not be alarmed? Because of who he is. Because of who God is. Then look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Jesus says a second time to be watchful, to be on guard. So the first time, he's talking about being on guard against false teachers and leaders, and now he's talking about being on guard against persecution, the persecution that's coming for you. He then gives some details of what's going to happen during this time period, during this persecution, which we see fulfilled in the book of Acts, which was probably written around 60 to 62 AD. And then these things happen to Peter, to John, to Paul. To other believers, we see this, all of that taking place before even 70 AD. And then we get to verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Jesus gives another must statement here. This must take place. This must happen. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Again, Jesus does not give a lot of details as to what exactly that means, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't explain this out further. But what he's pointing to here with this verse, he's pointing to the great commission that he's going to give his disciples, right? Matthew 28, when he commissions his disciples to go into all the world, to share the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that he's commanded you. This is what this is pointing to. It's pointing to this mission that we have. The disciples. They were commissioned, they were given the Old Testament idea of Isaiah 49.6. Isaiah 49.6 says this, He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, uh, 
preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now we should note here that Jesus and Isaiah, they are not pointing to a universalist ideology, which means that everybody's going to get saved, everybody's going to make it to heaven, um, nobody, nobody loses, nobody goes to hell, that everybody gets in, that all of humanity is saved. Jesus and Isaiah are not teaching that idea. So when it talks about reaching to the ends of the earth, when Jesus talks about the, the proclamation of the gospels going out to all the nations, Neither one of them have this, I, this idea in mind that everybody's going to make it. No. That type of theology is contradictory to really the whole of Scripture and the whole of what Jesus taught himself. So this is not the view that we should have when we think about the, the gospel going to all the nations or as we think about Isaiah 49, 6, reaching the end of the earth. So verse 11 um, tells us this, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And verse 11 is another encouragement to these disciples, these specific disciples, to be ready in the day of persecution, be ready in this day of tribulation that's coming for them specifically. And again, we see this happen in the book of Acts. We see this happen with Peter and John as they stand before the council. And what do they say? Well, you might tell us to stop speaking of Jesus, but we cannot do that because we fear God and not you. The fear of the Lord is why they did what they did, not the fear of man. Verse 12 it says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child and children will raise against their parents and have them put to death. Now, this is a really interesting verse and also a very tragic one. But the historian Josephus, again, is helpful here. And he records the story of a man named Simon during the fighting that took place in, in the Jewish War of 66-70 AD. He records the story of Simon who killed his own parents, his wife, his children, and all others that were in his house because he saw the Roman army and the invaders that were coming and the brutality of it. And he believed it to be more merciful for him to execute them than for the Romans. And so verse 12, we, we again, a lot of times think of this as uh, much further down the road, future kind of idea. But actually, when we overlay it with what Jesus says and what we have from even Josephus' history, is that it lines up perfectly. This, and it also affirms that Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is not speaking in just such vague terms that almost anything could fit into that. No, he, he does give some detail enough that we could point to something so specific as that, as Simon's story, and go, it happened. You can trust him. You can trust the words of Christ. You can trust your Bible. This is a prediction of the future, and even though it's not a pretty picture of the future, it comes true. Our last verse that we have this morning, verse 13 is what I would title to be a great recruitment verse for Christianity, right? And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Isn't all of these first 13 verses just so wonderful that if you weren't a Christian, you would want to be? No, probably not. We would probably hear these things if we weren't Christians and go, why would you ever want to follow that guy? You're going to be hated by everybody, you're going to be tortured and killed and persecuted. 
And what Jesus is doing, he's promising these specific disciples, and really, as we know throughout history, all disciples of Christ, that they are going to be hated. Why? Why will you be hated? Because you proclaim the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that he is the only way of salvation, that there is no other. You are so narrow-minded, you Christians. These first century Christians, specifically these disciples, they were hated by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, by the Romans. They were hated by the Zealots. And if you read that, the story of the, war, uh, of the Jewish war, you find that the Zealots are a pretty big group uh, to deal with. They're hated by all of them. The Christians, they were not welcome. They were despised by their culture. They were despised by all these different groups. So we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when we run up against persecution, when we have people in our life that are not Christians and they hate us. We should not be surprised that they say all kinds of nasty things about us and accuse us of all kinds of things that are untrue. Why do they do this? They do this because they hate the biblical Jesus. Now, some in our current culture would act in this way, but they would also claim of themselves to be Christians. But I would say they do not know Christ. Because if they did, then they would not actively be fighting for the same things that our culture is fighting for and promoting those same things. But they would point to the Scriptures. They would point to what is true and right. Jesus ends this verse with a statement. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures what? Persecution. Tribulation. That's coming to the disciples. mean? Well, this is going to mean something different for each disciple. Enduring to the end for guys, their end is different in how it ends. Enduring to the end for some of these might be to the end of their life might be to the end of their prison sentence, might be to the, the end of their slavery or the end of the, the, the social persecution and tribulation. And what does this endurance prove? Well, one thing that the endurance to the end does not do, what it does not uh, bring about, is it's not meriting your salvation. It's not earning your salvation that you've, you've went through this and now, now you've passed go, you've, you've paid the price this is not at all of how we should think about this verse or how we should think about suffering, how we should think about tribulation and trials. The only, the only thing that can bring about your salvation is the grace of God alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That is it. You can be burned at the stake, you can be beaten to death, you can be ripped apart by, by horses, you can be eaten by lions, you can be dipped in hot wax and lit on fire in a garden which are all things that happened in the first century to Christians. And some of those are still happening today. But none of those things could ever make anyone right before God. None of them ever pay for the sins in which you've committed. None of those ever could make you righteous before God. The only way for this to happen is that your sins are placed upon Jesus Christ. And that through the blood of Christ, you have a remission of your sins. They are removed from you, and his righteousness has been imputed to you. You are declared righteous before God. So when Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved, he means 
that this endurance is not going to earn you a place in heaven, but that it is a proof, a proof that your eternal salvation is a reality. It's real. Now, from verses such as this one, we get, we get this doctrine that we would call the perseverance of the saints. Now, in recent history, that's been kind of re, recanned in a way that's been labeled as once saved, always saved. Now, to this statement, some would claim uh, that that means that you can do whatever you want and still go to heaven, that you, you've got your ticket punched uh, you've got on the, the ship headed for heaven, and so you've got your insurance, and you can do whatever you want in this life, and, and you'll be just fine. Well, we would, all, we would say, no, that's not true. I think we should use the old terminology of perseverance of the saints because it's a clearer way to explain what we mean. So when we point to verse 13 and talk about verse 13 and, and what it's teaching, What we see that the saints or the believers, they will endure through these difficulties as a pre with other verses throughout the scriptures that would point to the same idea, the same kind of teaching. And let me give you one of those. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus is speaking here and he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why is your salvation secure? Why? Why? Can you not lose that salvation? Because Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd and he loses how many sheep? You can answer that. None. He loses none of them. His sheep might be slaughtered in this world, and he promises that they'll be slaughtered in this world, but they will not die in eternal death. His sheep might lose their homes, their livelihood, their possessions, their families, but they will not lose their family and their home in heaven. They belong to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no one greater than our Lord, And no one will be able to peel back the the fingers of God so that they could pluck out one of those. I would also say that this includes yourself. When Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, he is including in that list of no one, yourself. You. Paul does the same thing in Romans 8. I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. No one can pluck you out of the hand of God. Who is stronger than our Father? Who has greater might than Him? No one. Why will the saints endure? Because they belong to Jesus Christ. They belong to Him. What about those that have walked away from the faith, Pastor? What about those that are not enduring even now in the time that we have in America where mass persecution isn't happening What about those? What about those claimed to be saints? Well, let me point you to one of John's other writings. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What did the saints do? They remain in the body. 
What do the saints of Jesus Christ do that are members of his body? They stay in the body. Why? Because Jesus Christ doesn't lose body parts. He's a good shepherd. He doesn't lose his sheep either. He was walked away from the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. John is saying, and I, they've never had faith in him. And it's proven, as John says, by their abandonment of the gathering. You know these people. You're related to some of these people. Maybe you're even married to a person like this. And the worst thing that you can do or we can do as a church is to allow them to keep on believing that they are okay with God when they are neglecting and mistreating the bride of Christ. John is saying, they do not know him and they are not saved by him. So quit treating these people as if they are followers of Christ when there's been no following of Christ. This is the most damning thing you can do for them. This is the most loving thing you can do is say something about it. Is call out their hypocrisy. Say, no, I'm a Christian. Why do you have nothing to do with the Bible or with God's people? Well, I read the Bible. Do you? What's the last thing you read? When's the last time you were in church? When's the last time... We need to call these things out. Again, not in some hateful way, but in a, a reality check for them. It's the most loving thing you could do for them. Throughout this chapter, as we are seeing and we will see in the future here, we hear Jesus warning his sheep, warning his disciples about what's coming. And not only does he give warning about what's coming, but he also gives encouragement in this warning. Encourage them to endure to the end. Keep fighting in your faith to the end. The believer should never be surprised about the events or the circumstances that are happening. Whether it's before 70 AD or after 70 AD, it shouldn't matter. We should not be surprised when we face a life that is hard, that is so anti-Christian. Jesus promised, promised that this world will hate you because of him. It's a divine necessity that we will suffer. We must endure to the end. When is the end? I don't know. And if you know somebody or you hear somebody talking to you about, well, the end is when this is going to happen, they probably don't know either. Stop trusting them. Stop buying into their fear. Because honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because everything is in the hands of God. Our Heavenly Father, He controls all things. Nothing happens outside of Him that He doesn't want to happen. And He has given us instructions as, a has, out of, as to how to live in this time to the end. You've been given the instruction. The saints of God will persevere to the end and will be. Just a couple of reflection questions as we then quickly transition into a time of communion, of taking the Lord's Supper. The two questions that I have for you to think through today are, have you let your guard down? Have you stopped being watchful? Have you not been vigilant in your guarding of your soul or of your family's soul? Have you let your guard down? Have you stepped off that wall and went to your recliner? Just because it's in the hands of God does not mean that we... We have no responsibility 
Jesus is pointing to the fact that you still should be watching. You still should be on guard. Second question, how does divine necessity give us comfort when there's persecution and tribulation? Would you just spend a few moments as we uh, ask our deacons to come to prepare uh, the ordinances? Spend some time just with those questions in, in prayer, in thought, meditation. And as we come to a time of reflecting upon what Christ has done for us in, in observing communion this morning, I also want you to focus on the grace of God that's been shown to you. I know in, in my own habit, in my own uh, personal reflection, I, I can be extremely condemning to myself, and that's rightful, that I should be. And I neglect the grace of God as well. So I want you to think upon the grace of God that's been shown to you this past week. I want you to think upon how, how good God has been to you in extending mercy to you, in saving you from the eternal death in which you do deserve. Think upon the grace of God. And what we will be doing in just a moment is we're going to be dismissing you if you haven't been with us uh, these outside aisles will be dismissed. Come to the front, receive the ordinances, go back to the center aisle, back to your seat, and then wait, and we will all take this together. Uh, and our, our elders will be up here, and we'll pray for each of those ordinances before we partake. So at this time, as you come back to your seat, be thinking on these things. Be thinking upon the grace of God, upon the sacrifice that's been made for you. Go ahead, guys.